Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the, man, the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, <clears throat> Excuse me. and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, like I said before we started our recording, we're not going to get to the end of this section that I just read to you tonight, but we're going to hopefully get through verse 27. What I want you to notice, though, is in verse 18 is, notice how Jesus wasn't seeking to please large crowds. He was far more concerned with his father's plan for him than amassing large crowds of followers. Look at verse 18 again. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, what did he do? He said, let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, that interesting. Let that sink in for a minute. I'm going to take you through some scriptures tonight to talk to you about this, because what I want to talk to you about goes against everything we've been taught in church life. We've been taught to grow the church. We've been taught to amass numbers. We've been taught how do we get more people? How do we reach more? How do we get more? And we've been taught to get bigger crowds, right? But if you look scripturally, I'm going to show you, Jesus wasn't as concerned with a, 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 uh, accumulating, if you will, masses of people to follow him. Go back to Mark chapter 1. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Mark chapter 1 and look at verses 35 through 39. <clears throat> it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, this is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So here again we see, they said, There's a group of people looking for you, Jesus. Let's go somewhere else. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Let me remind you of something that we studied just a little bit ago in our study of Matthew back in chapter 7. Look again at what he said in verses 13 and 14. It says, He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what? For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Few. Isn't that interesting? He said, Actually, the big crowd is going to be heading to destruction. The few are the ones who are going to be making it to eternal life. Now, I'm going to walk you through a study in the book of Acts that hopefully will kind of help you see this even more. 
Uh, we're going to look at numbers in the book of Acts. Start in chapter 2 with me. And I'm going to show you how God isn't as concerned with uh, local numbers as much as we've been taught. Go to Acts chapter 2 and look at verses 40 and 41. It says, and this is at the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It says, and with many other words, he, this is Peter, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added, there was added that day about 3,000 souls. So here, at the end of Peter's sermon, 3,000 people were baptized and joined the church there in Jerusalem. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 4. And it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So now the numbers have grown from 3,000 to 5,000. That's pretty cool. Keep reading. Go to chapter 5. And look at verses 12 through 16. In chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now none of the rest dared join them, but that's because if you just read the first part of chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira had been killed for lying. That made you know, church membership and signing up slow down a little bit. And, uh, but they didn't dare join them, but more than ever... Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And Peter came by, at, his, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those uh, afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So now, let's be honest, the number was 3,000 at the end of his sermon. There was 5,000 in chapter 4. We get to chapter 5, even though people are afraid to join them, the number of believers keeps growing and growing it's getting pretty crazy in Jerusalem. Go to chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The numbers are still increasing. Go to chapter 8. Stephen has just been stoned at the end of chapter 7. And it says, Saul, we know him as Paul, approved of his execution. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, Except the, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Isn't that interesting? The church was growing, 
3,000, 5,000, more, more, more. I, there were other passages I could have showed you. I could have showed you Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, where it talks about how the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Yet, interestingly enough, as the numbers grew and grew and grew and grew, what did God do? He scattered them all. He scattered them all. Now, there's lots of reasons for this. One is, what had he told them in Matthew chapter 28, right after he rose from the dead during those 40 days? He said, go into all the world, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. But they didn't. They all decided, let's stay here. Oh, do you remember back when in Genesis chapter 1, God told Adam and Eve, he said, um, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. You get to chapter 11, though, and the people say, we don't want to be scattered across the whole earth. Let's make a name for ourselves here. And as you know, they built the Tower of Babel. What happened next? He scattered them again. Folks, we've been taught to try to grow the church. Who does the Bible say is responsible for the church growth? God. One plants, another waters. It's God who takes care of whether or not there's increase. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 16 said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And I just want to caution you of the danger of trying to just focus on growing the church. I believe that we're to be going out and sharing, scattering the seed, loving people and watering the seed. We're to be sharing as God and when God tells us to. But we're to leave the results to him. But we've been all taught to measure how we're doing by whether or not the church is growing or whether or not the church is shrinking. And let me tell you, growth isn't always good. You saw in Acts chapter 6 what started to happen. As the numbers increased, what started to happen in the group of people as the numbers increased? The complaints all of a sudden started to arise. And the people started going, well, they started to fuss over. And folks, if you've ever been a part of Christian church, you know that the more the church grows, the more uncomfortable it gets. And people start fussing with each other. Who, I like this. And well, I like this. Well, I like this music. Well, I like this music. I like it this temperature in this room. And I like it this temperature in this room. And we all start to fuss with each other over that kind of stuff. But on top of that, once we get focused on numbers and growth, it causes us to fall into a couple of sins. One is jealousy and another is compromise. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18, look at verses 6 through 9. As you're turning there, I want to read to you real quickly a text I got yesterday from a lady in Chicago, and she had no idea that I would be teaching on this last night and tonight. This is the text she sends to me. She says, why do we always number things like how many people are in church? David got in trouble for it. I wrote, we shouldn't, but we like to measure how, quote unquote, we are doing. She writes, that's dangerous. I said, yep. It is definitely exciting to see, but if we focus on that, what if God in his purposes, and I'm going to show you scripturally, chooses not to have that happen for a season? That's where I'm going to get to. So hang on to your question, Mike, because that's a really good question. Because we, we, we want to see that. The problem is, 
God doesn't always do it that way. There are seasons in which that happens, and then there are seasons which it doesn't. We, we could tell you stories upon missionaries that went faithfully and did what God said to do, but saw one convert after how many years of work, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. But I'm getting to that in a second, so I'll come back to that. First off, look at 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 9. It says, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And this is what they sang. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but, not the, but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. You do hopefully understand, and I want you to see it from Scripture. Go to Matthew 25, that God has gifted each of us according to not only the ability he's given us, but what he's expecting from each of us. And hopefully you understand from Scripture, God is not expecting everybody to produce the same amount of results. In Matthew 25, look at verse 14. He's talking about his return. He said, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he who also had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, word for word, the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now we're not going to get into the third servant because that's not the focus of where we're going right now. But did you notice? Each one was given five, another two, another one, each according to their ability. And the one who had been faithful with what he had been given in the five, God multiplied it through his gifting through that person to the point that when he was time to be reckoned with God and God reckoned with him on what he did, he had turned it into ten. And God says, you did great. And the one that had been given the two had turned it into two. And God said to him, you did great. But one of the problems is, when we get focused on how many people have come in, one of the things is we start looking at and we say, well, so-and-so brought in 10. Here, this person only brought in four. And that causes us to be jealous and to compete. I'm not going to have you turn there. Actually, I do want you to turn there. we got time. Go to Romans chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 12. Go to Romans chapter 12. Jim, there's a quote that comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. That's interesting. I like that. I had, to, I had to ruminate on it a little bit. Romans 12, look at verses 3 through 8. <clears throat> Paul says to them, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Look closely. We're gonna, I'm going to ask you a question about this passage in a second here. 
For as in one body we have many parts, and the parts don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members or parts one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If it's prophecy in proportion to our faith. Then he goes on if it's serving and so on. I want to ask you a question. What do you think he says? he's saying here when he says that we're to each use Look at ourselves with sober judgment, not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but also look at ourselves each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And if your gift is preaching, do it in proportion to your faith. What do you think he's saying? That's a question, by the way. <laughs> not everybody's the same. Not everybody's the same. That's very clear in here. But he's just saying now, you're to work according to the measure of faith that you've been assigned. And when you do the gift you've been given... Use it in proportion to your faith. Don't go outside of what God's done and given to you. Don't. Very good. Very good. Let me give you an example. You all, if you've been Christians long enough, you know there are some guys that are gifted by God to stand in front of an auditorium of 40,000 people and they can preach the word and every single person in that room feels like they've connected with that preacher. There are other preachers that if they were to go stand in front of that group of people, they'd kill the room. Yet at the same time, those ones who are gifted to speak in front of large masses aren't the best to do a small group. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, have you ever noticed there are those who are really gifted preachers and there are others who are more of a preacher-teacher kind of a thing? And they really do well in a small group setting. And so what we have to be careful, though, is, is because the guy that's gifted by God to really teach in the small group setting will be jealous of the one who's preaching in front of the 40,000. If you get focused on the numbers, I'm going to ask you a question. Who was a better preacher, Jesus or Peter? We hope that the answer is Jesus. But at the same time, with the measurements we use today, let's be honest, with the measurements we use today, at the end of three years of ministry, Jesus had 120 that we could count in the upper room, Maybe 500, because the Bible says that after he rose from the dead, 500 met him in Galilee. But again, the Bible also says some of those people doubted. Peter had 3,000 people respond to one sermon. Do you see the danger of focusing on numbers? There's nothing wrong with getting excited about seeing people get saved in large numbers. But I'm also going to say to you, Mike, and you, I know you know this, just because large numbers of people supposedly prayed a prayer or came down an aisle doesn't mean that that many people really got saved. Go ahead. It's not really who is the best preacher. It's how many people in the congregation or the audience had their spiritual eyes and ears opened by God. To Ex hear and react to what exactly. The focus and the glory should be going to God. But we, because when we look at the numbers, we get to give, start giving the praise to that guy because he has a better response. Um, years ago, when I was an associate pastor of a big church in New Orleans, we did this thing. I was one of eight pastors in this church. We did this thing, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames production. Have you ever seen the Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames? If you haven't, it's, it's very powerful. And all it is, is the, this team comes into the church and works with a group of people that want to do skits. They work with them for like a week or two to get ready for this big week of revival. And every night, there is this big stage set up out front in, in the front of the church. And on the st stage in front is all these little mini skits that go on. And inevitably, it gets to be a joke. At the end of each skit, somebody's dying. 
And they either go to heaven or they go to hell. And, and seriously, I mean, some, when they die, they fall down on the stage and then they get up and they go up this golden staircase and Jesus meets them and they go off into the baptistry or whatever and go to heaven. Others are dragged off by Satan into hell. It's a scary, powerful presentation. It's called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flame. So well, we did this and there were, we had 300 people give their life to Jesus over the however many nights we did it. And being one of the associate pastors, the senior pastor told me to keep track of all the names and we were going to go visit everybody. And I literally took a wall of my office, covered it with paper and wrote down all the names. And I kept track of all the visits and who did what. Do you know, after we had gone and visited all 300 people who had made a profession of faith, how many people truly got saved? Three. You'd be amazed how many people we'd go visit and they say, oh, I only went for it because I was praying for my mama. It was an emotional response. It looked real big. The theatrics, I mean, it scares you. It scares you. And they followed the crowd. So there's a danger in saying, look at the numbers. I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate when that happens. The Bible lists that there were 3,000. Tells us for a reason. Praise God. 5,000, praise God, but be careful. How many of you grew up in a church that up on the front, they had those little plaques? What the attendance was last week in Sunday school and what the offering was. And we've been taught to focus on results. That will cause you to become jealous. And here's the second thing I want you to see. It'll cause you to compromise. Because if producing results becomes the most important thing, it, you'll start to do things in order to get more people. And hasn't the church fallen prey to that over the years? Become seeker friendly. The Bible says the seeker is Jesus. There's no one that seeks God. Romans chapter 3 verse 11. If anybody's seeking God, he began the seeking of them first. Yet we design our church services to draw the lost. When actually, Jesus, as you're going to see, made it hard for people to want to come. But when they did come, it was real. And that's what I want to be a part of. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. I talked with a man uh, this past Sunday who told me that he got saved every Sunday night in the church he was in. And he was serious. Isaiah chapter 6, look at verses 1 through 13. They probably led their denomination in baptisms too. But Isaiah chapter 6, look at 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, I said, Woe is me, for I'm a lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Keep reading because this is where the preacher stops reading. But keep reading. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. Keep reading. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isn't that interesting? We've always heard the preacher get as far as whom, uh, whom will I send, who will go for me? Here am I, send me. And then the preacher closes his Bible and says we need more volunteers. And he wasn't volunteering, by the way. He was the only one in the room when God said, whom will I send, who will go for me? It was kind of like, I guess that's me. You know, at the same time, then the message to him was, oh, you've had this amazing experience where you've seen my throne. I've cleansed you and, and atoned for your sins. I got a job for you to do. I'm going to use you, Isaiah, to preach. But you're really not going to see the results of what I do through you in your lifetime. Now, many of us, including the Ethiopian eunuch, have come to faith because of Isaiah. Well, God through Isaiah. You all know that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading a passage from Isaiah when he was wrestling and the Spirit of God was drawing him. And God uses, has used Isaiah over the years mightily. And I believe that God's going to use him when he finishes what he started with the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. I believe the Bible's very clear that Isaiah is going to be one of the key passages that God uses to draw the Jews, Jews back to him. But in his lifetime, he was told you're going to be ever preaching and they're not going to listen. They're going to be ever preaching and they're not going to hear. Most of us would say, that's no fun. Or we wouldn't be obedient and we try to come up with ways to get the results. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we don't tamper with the word of God or use cunning or man's wisdom. We just preach Christ and him crucified. And if they understand it, God's opened their eyes. If they don't, Satan's blinded their eyes. Our job is just to share it. Be careful of focusing on numbers. One last passage, and then we'll get back to our study in Matthew 8. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 4. Look at how serious this charge is. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He says, you need to keep in mind that with the return of Christ and the fact that he's going to judge the living and the dead and that he's coming and setting up his kingdom, you're going to, I'm going to give you a charge, preach the word. Be faithful to preach the word. Use it to rebuke, to encourage, to challenge. Do it with patience, though, because the time's coming, and we're in those days when people are going to go find preachers that say what they like. And by the way, those churches are full. It's happening. They're all around. I actually heard this was said this week. As someone was in a Bible study, and they were looking at a passage, and this one individual said, I don't believe that. And they said, why? 
God, Timothy wrote, it's right here. He goes, Timothy's been dead for years. I actually take what I think, and I don't, I reject that, I accept this. I re and literally in the Bible study, he said, sat there in front of everybody and said, Timothy's dead, been dead for years. And he had developed his own theology made up of the things that he liked and the things that he didn't like. And he hung on to the things he liked. And, and this man was going to Bible study on a, on a Tuesday morning. They're out there, folks. And if you're out to get numbers, you can find lots of people like that. Are we willing to just be faithful to preach the truth and leave the results to God? Actually, go back to Matthew chapter 8. And what happens next in our text for tonight ties into what we've just studied. If Jesus was about amassing numbers of followers, followers he would have responded very different to these two men. Look again at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side of the lake. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Let's stop and deal with that for a second. Who, who said this to him? Who in front of this whole crowd of people said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Who said it? Were the scribes fans of Jesus or, or not fans of Jesus? Oh, definitely not fans of Jesus. He actually had been bashing them and the Pharisees and the scribes. What are you scribes? What are you Pharisees? So for this man to publicly say, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. He had just put a target on his back with the rest of the scribes. And Jesus, knowing this, says to him, I'm paraphrase it. He says, uh, don't think following me is going to be comfortable. Most of us, if we're focused on numbers and someone says, hey, I want to join you. Come on. Jesus said, whoa, 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 don't run down the aisle just yet. You better count the cost. Because if you follow me, don't think it's going to be comfortable. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. By the way, you ever heard the term nowadays with millennials couch surfing? Jesus was doing it years ago. He was the first couch surfer. And when Jesus died, what had he amassed when it came to accumulations of assets? One piece of clothing that they all cast lots for. Yet he never lacked a thing. He never lacked a meal. He never lacked for anything. God provided for him. But it wasn't about living for this life. And he just told this guy, look, you want to follow me? Don't seek to be comfortable. Now, I'm not saying this to be mean. But we in America, we want comfort. If this room was not air conditioned. And it's interesting how it kicked on at that exact same time. <laughs> if this room were not air conditioned, how many of us would still come? Are you going to open the windows and break Are you going to make it more comfortable? <laughs> I'm just saying, be careful about thinking that it's, everything's supposed to be comfortable when you follow Jesus. If you've ever been on mission trips, folks, and you go to parts of the world where they worship, boy, they really worship, and they go for hours sometimes, and they don't understand what lights are, let alone air conditioning and electricity and all that. We have gotten soft. We've gotten soft. How many people have left from following Jesus when, because things didn't go like they thought that it would? How many people do you know in your lifetime that had made a profession of faith? That's the danger of focusing on the numbers. But then mama died. And I prayed for God to not have mama die. And mama died and he let me down and they stopped following. 
Go to Matthew 13. You're in chapter 8. Go to chapter 13. Look at verses 20 and 21. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And we add him to our numbers. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Go to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 52. Jesus had just said, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogues he taught at Capernaum. Now, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who didn't believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by my Father. Now after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you guys want to go away as well? He doesn't seem too interested in trying to keep people here and amass numbers. By the way, back in Acts, did it say that all those numbers were people that were saved? Or was it that sometimes it said, sometimes it said the Lord added, those were. Other times it said the number of disciples increased. We used to hear that there's a bunch of disciples, and what happened? They left. Actually, we got to be real careful. Focusing on growth. Well, I've been through it. Cancer grows. It grows fast. Does that mean it's healthy? There's a danger here, folks, and we got to let the scriptures speak to us. Jesus said, look, I only want those who are truly responding to my father. And that's what we need to be looking for and focusing on. Again, we don't know who's saved and who's not, and we need to preach and share with everyone. But don't get so focused on keeping everybody here. How often has the church said, oh, they might leave? And we quickly change something that God's told us to do because we want to keep somebody here. How many pastors have been, let's just say, impotent because of the fact that they're so worried about certain individuals who are big givers and they might leave the church? How many of us have been, has anybody ever heard the term in the church, uh, the back door? People come in the front door and then they go out the back door. Has anybody ever heard that term? If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's it, this mindset of as people come in, we want to shut the back door so that they don't leave. We want people to stay and the church keep growing. But when people leave, 
How did Jesus respond when people left? You're free to go. Nobody's holding you here, because if you're truly here, well, go to 1 John chapter 2. Go to 1 John chapter 2, look at verses 18 and following. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he said, Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist, the Antichrist, is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And so look what he says. There are going to be those who are amongst us, and they're going to leave. If they left, they never were really of us. If they were, they would have stayed. That doesn't mean they'll stay in this local congregation. Actually, God moves us for his purposes. He moves us for his reasons. He has seasons in our life where he wants us to be at a certain place. And then he wants to move us so that we'll grow and learn some more things in a new place. How many of you have been moved by God over the years in your walk with the Lord? Many times. And as you look back over it, you now realize, hey, you know what? As hard as it was, I'm grateful because I grew in my walk in the next place. And I grew in my walk in the next place. And if we stay in one place, we'll actually become stagnant. He moves us for a reason. And if the church is more interested in just preaching to who will come and sharing with whoever will come, preaching the truth, not being apologetic about it, but not trying to compromise it, but just sharing it in love and letting God do whatever he wants. And if they stay great, and if they go, let them go and do be used to God in other places. God will be honored. But if we focus on numbers and trying to please the crowds, it'll pull you out of the abiding relationship with the Lord. Go back to Matthew chapter 8. Look at the next guy. Verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, a lot of people, first off, when they hear disciple, they think one of the 12. No, this isn't one of the 12. This is just, there always were many disciples. That's why we saw back in John chapter 6, upon hearing this, many of his disciples stopped following. They said, this is hard teaching. But then he turned to the 12 and said, do you guys want to go too? You're free to go. Some of the, one of his disciples said, Lord, I want to follow you, but let me bury my father first. Now, a lot of people have also heard that and they thought, man, this guy's dad just died and Jesus wouldn't let him go to the funeral. No, that's not it. Actually, as you do a study on this, you'll find what he was saying was, my dad's still alive and once he dies, I'll get my inheritance. And when I get my inheritance, then I'll come follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. If you're going to follow me, follow me and be willing to give up the inheritance to follow me. And I'm not going to spend too, too much time on this, but I want to just let the scripture speak to you. Go to Luke chapter 15. A lot of us have had to decide in following Jesus, whether or not we're going to follow man's principles and ways that will make us a few extra bucks or whether or not we're going to just trust the Lord and not use man's ways of making a few extra bucks and just trust him to take care of us. 
How many of you were raised in a denomination that taught you you were saved because you were baptized as a baby, but then later on you came to an understanding from the scriptures that you're not saved because you were baptized as a baby, but you have to only make the decision for yourself as, as, a, as, a, as a person with understanding and then be baptized to profess your faith. But how many people have come to that understanding but won't follow Jesus publicly because it'll make mama hurt? And they won't be willing to let the dead bury their own dead to follow Jesus. Look at Luke 15, verses 25 and following. Now the great crowds accompanied him. Oh, I got a crowd here. Listen to the sermon he's about to preach. <clears throat> you can have your best life now, Jesus said. No, that's not what he said. He said, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. That's not the kind of preaching we hear. All we hear is, all you got to do is pray this prayer. Oh, there's so much more to it. Let me show you a verse that some of you may not know, but I want you to see it. It's to us. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and look at verse 12. <clears throat> Why do you think Jesus said what he said to this large crowd of people that were all there to listen to him? When he knew that that wasn't going to make the large crowd of people want to respond positively. Exactly. He understood that wides the path that goes to destruction and many go that way and narrows the road that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. And he was willing to preach the truth. He wasn't into accomplishing and amassing numbers and getting many baptisms. He was more into letting the Father do what the Father is going to do. And look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He doesn't say you might be persecuted. He says everyone who really desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me share, share something with you. And if you're serious about this, and I'm not asking you to be a jerk about it, because th there are those kind of people that are in the church too. I'm not talking about those. But if you're willing to be faithful, to just trust the Lord and to do what he says and to try to follow Jesus, and be obedient to his word and not play a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of the world and a little bit of him and a little bit of the world. But feeling to be really to sell all out, to count the cost and deny everything and follow him. You're going to experience most of your persecution from within the church. Because they're going to be saying, are oh, you taking it too serious? You're taking it too serious. Well, folks, I don't know about you, but it sure looks like that's what Jesus said when he talked to the crowd. You better take it serious. 
And if you're not willing to totally forsake everything and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Now, the good news is he doesn't ask you to drop everything right now. Are you willing, though, to follow him, even though that means over the period of time of you walking with him as he's in his sanctification process, that he's going to be asking you to let things drop as you go? See, we think that he means, okay, Lord, I'm dropping everything and I'm coming to you now. No, no, no. He says, no, I want you to be willing to forsake all and I want you to come follow me. And as we go, I'm going to teach you how to let go of stuff that I know there's there, but I'm not asking you to let go of it all now. You couldn't handle it. I want you just to let go of this one area right now. But if you're going to be one of those ones that says, well, I'll go this far, but I won't do this. You can't be my disciple. Let me ask you a question tonight. What are you still trying to hold on to as you follow Jesus? Your reputation? Your control? Your plans? Your sin? What are you still trying to hold on to? What would Jesus say to you? As my disciple, I want you to be willing to give this up. And follow me. But Lord, I had plans for that money. What if he asked you to do something with it? But Lord, I know that my child was actually born by you, for you. But I really was expecting them to become, you fill in the blank. But what if I have other plans for them? I'm going to let the Holy Spirit take it from there. Because I want to get to tonight, in the last 15 minutes that we have, something in the story of Jesus calming the storm that I had never, ever seen before. And I've been preaching for almost 40 years. And I am blown away by what God showed me. And I can't wait to show it to you. Go back to Matthew chapter 8. Look at verses 23 through 27. When Jesus got into the boat, remember he said, let's go to the other side of the lake. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, there's a lot here, but this is one of the greatest examples of Jesus being 100% man and 100% God. We obviously can see the 100% God part when he stands up and he just speaks to the wind and the waves and they are instantly calm. Any of you are fishermen, you ever been out on a boat when the wind is going? If a storm dies down, it eventually dies down. But actually, if you do a study of the Greek words here, it was like Jesus said, be still. And the wind stopped. And the waves went like glass. So much so that the disciples realized the wind and the waves just said, yes, sir, and shut right up. And they were like, okay, who is this guy? Now, but not only is he 100% God, we also see that he's man. Because the Bible says God doesn't sleep. But Jesus was asleep. Because in his humanity, he was tired. All the journeys and the crowds. But let me just tell you, dealing with crowds is, is tiring. 
My wife will tell you in my years of traveling and speaking and being a pastor as well and dealing with crowds. And, and a lot of times I deal with large crowds. And when I go for a week of preaching, at the end of the week of preaching, something happens to me physically that we call at our, our house crashing. When you're used by God at the end of that time, when I finish on a week of revival, that last night when I go back to the hotel or whatever, it's like someone just pulled the energy plug right out of me and I'm crashing. And I understand this need to sleep. Go with me to Psalm 121, though, because Psalm 121 is where God took me as I was looking at this. Because I remembered, I knew that somewhere in the scriptures, at least in one place, the scripture said that God doesn't sleep. In Psalm 121. Yes. Yes, that's the man part of him. But he was also God. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus in you? Is God in you? Do you sleep? Does God sleep? Oh, so when you sleep, God doesn't sleep. So when I'm talking about Jesus sleep, when sleeping, his human side laid down and went to sleep. The God part of him was still wide awake the whole time. He can't. Well, <laughs> yeah. Look at Psalm 121. Psalm 121, look at verses 1 through 4. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, as I then began to study some more and look for some more passages, because again, my intent was to show you how he was 100% man and 100% God, and here's humanity was sleeping and tired, but at the same time, God doesn't sleep. Can anybody show me one other place in the Bible where it says God doesn't sleep? You may find a place or two that it says he doesn't get tired, but can you show me any other place in the Bible where it says God doesn't sleep? There isn't. If there is, I'd love for you to show it to me. I thought there was one too. I was convinced there was another. And I dug and I dug. And guess what? Either I missed it, or this is the only place in the Bible that it literally says these words, God doesn't sleep. And then all of a sudden, he opened my eyes to something that I had never seen before in this story. But before I tell you what that is, we gotta lay the foundation. Go back and let's look at Mark's account. Let's go back and look at Mark's account. Can't help it. For you to grasp it, you got to have done a little bit of the study that I had done. Go to Mark chapter 4 and look at verses 35 through 41. We see a little bit more. The disciples came and they woke Jesus as the storm grew worse. And their concern was not only that they would die. Their concern was that he wasn't concerned. Look at Mark's account of it in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 and following. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat as he was. And there were other boats with him. Now we know there were more than just one boat. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Real quickly, jump over to Luke chapter 8. Let's look at Luke's account. He brings in one more little thing. It's been mentioned in the other accounts, but he brings it up in more detail. In Luke chapter 8, look at verses 22 through 25. On the, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. Now the Bible again shows us they were, the boat was filling up with water. And they were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. So let's put this together now. I've never been to Israel yet, but I've done the research and I found that the Sea of Galilee is so many feet below sea level and it's got the mountains around it. And when the wind blows down the mountains, let's call them the hills, if you will, and it blows down, it causes a great storm and the waves get pretty serious on that lake. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. Had he not checked his GPS or his radar or did he know that it was going to have a storm? Of course he knew. You have to know from the scriptures. Nothing happens that he doesn't already know. Peter says, I'm willing to go to prison and death for you. Actually, buddy, you're going to deny you even know me three times for the rooster crows. He, there isn't a thing that isn't going to. He already knows. He knows what people are thinking. He knew there was going to be a storm. And he knew that the wind, well, as we saw here, was going to blow down, down the mountains, down the hills, onto the lake. And I think Jesus, and this is what I think God opened my eyes to, I think Jesus went to sleep on purpose. Because he told them we were going to the other side. Everything he did was on purpose. I believe Jesus didn't just sleep because he was tired. Jesus actually went to sleep because of what was about to happen, listen, so that he could send them back to Psalm 121. The only place that it says that God doesn't sleep. Why? Go back with me to Psalm 121 and look again at what Psalm 121 is saying. And by the way, if you've never heard Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir's version of this psalm, you need to go just Google it, man. My Help. It's called My Help. One of the most powerful songs I've ever heard of their choir. Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The disciples looked at the wind and the waves and they quickly go to Jesus and they say, don't you care? Now, stop for a second. Were they coming to him in faith because they believed he had the power to fix it? No, because if they did, they would have gone, oh, good. <laughs> he spoke to the wind and the waves. We're all good. But when he when he did what he did, they were like, whoa, we didn't expect that. What did they expect? 
I think they were just simply expecting him to bail. They just, how can you be sleeping during this? Don't you care? But they weren't expecting him to do something in the sense of telling the wind and the waves to be still. They only could have been thinking, Jesus, get up, help us bail water. And he says to them, where's your faith? And what was he doing the whole time that this was all going on? The one thing the Bible says in Psalm 121 that God doesn't do. He doesn't sleep. And then he showed that he was God. And I think if these Jews knew Psalm 121, and, and, and it was one very well known, they would have begin through the Spirit, begin put two and two together. Where does my help come from? I'm going to look up to the hills, but I'm not going to look at the wind and the waves. I'm going to look to the Lord, who doesn't sleep. He's the maker of heaven and earth, and he can command the wind and the waves, and he'll never let you be hurt. That doesn't mean we'll never be sick and we're not going to die. We're not going to go there. Remember, we've already spent the last two times in our study looking at the fact that, that God doesn't promise that we'll never die or we'll never be sick. But at the same time, what he was showing them was, I've already told you that I got you. I'm God. I've already told you that I got you. Where's your faith? Where are you looking? Have you ever noticed, and we see this all through the scriptures, that whenever Jesus was trying to get his disciples to see something, he kept pointing them back to the scriptures. The two men on the road to Emmaus had heard that he had risen from the dead. The women had come and reported that they had seen angels that said he was alive. Peter and John had raced to the tomb and they found it empty and they came back and reported, yet they weren't real sure. So they start walking back to Emmaus and Jesus appears with them, keeps them from recognizing that it's him. And the whole way he, he asked them this question, he said, what are you guys talking about? Act like he didn't know. Are you, are you first person that hadn't been around in Jerusalem, don't know what's going on? Tell me, what happened? And as they did, he then showed them what? For the whole walk. All the scriptures concerning himself. Folks, when you're in the middle of something, God will take you back to his word to remind you of all the promises that we've been given. Has he not promised that we are his and that he's got us? Boy, I can't wait till we get on the cruise. If you haven't signed up for the cruise yet, please get it going quick because the boat's filling up quick. But I'm going to be doing a study on all the places that I can find in the scripture that says how much more. And one of them is in Romans chapter 5 where it says, if he would die for us while we were still sinners and still his enemy, how much more will we be saved from his wrath now that we're his children? We need to be reminded when stuff happens in our life that he's got us. God has got you. The one who is watching you is the one who made the universe. He's got you. Let me ask you a question. Does anything happen out of his control? And last night, after Chris had been there last night because he helped record last night, he brought up an interesting point that I want to close it with. He said, Jesus demonstrated his perfect faith in the Father and the fact that he as a human could go to sleep. Because there was a chance that the disciples wouldn't wake him. You know what I'm saying? With the boat filling up, of course, he knew what was going to happen. But he actually trusted the Father enough to go to sleep, even though he knew a storm was coming. What about you? Are you able to sleep if you know a storm might be coming? Or do you sit and worry, 
me give you a scripture to go home with tonight. Just listen to it and write it down. Look at it for yourself. It's in Isaiah chapter 26. By the way, God's been using Isaiah a bunch, even though while he was alive, he saw no results, really. Isaiah 26, verse 3 says this. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he cares for you, because you care for him. Folks, did you catch that? If you keep your eyes and your mind on the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth, he doesn't sleep. And he won't allow anything to happen to you that's outside of his control. He's got you. He's got you. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.